1: Rishi Sunak is facing some very tough choices in his budget next week, with pressure to deal with the public finances while not stifling growth as the country emerges from lockdown.
2: Coronavirus may have closed much of our economy, but this government's approach is crashing it. Next Wednesday is a chance to change course.
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be looking ahead to Sunak's second budget and the challenges he faces, as set out by Labour's Annalise Dodds at the top. Will he be raising taxes, spending or both? How will his colleagues feel about perhaps a rather unconventional Conservative budget? political editor George Parker will be analysing, along with special guest Gemma Tetlow, who's Chief Economist at the Institute for Government think tank. And later, we'll be discussing the extraordinary events in Scotland in recent weeks, as the war between First Minister Nicola Sturgeon and her predecessor Alex Salmon exploded into the spotlight. Will the revelations at Friday's committee hearing have the potential to sink Ms Sturgeon? Scotland correspondent Miu Dickey will be explaining all, along with our chief political commentator, Robert Shrimsley. So thank you all for joining, and with much discuss, it's straight into the main topic of the week. In normal times, Rishi Sunak's second budget would be a defining event for the Johnson government, with Brexit delivered and ministers settling to their second year in power, But the coronavirus pandemic has upended all that. Sunak's first budget last year was ripped up days after it was delivered due to COVID. And since then, he's had to spend over £400 billion in propping up the economy during successive lockdowns. Now, he has to level with the public about the cost of these measures. Boris Johnson told MPs this week that support would continue as long
2: as required. So I want to reassure the House, we will not pull the rug out. For the duration of the pandemic, the government will continue to do whatever it takes to protect jobs and livelihoods across the UK. And my right hon. friend, the Chancellor, will set out further details in the budget next Wednesday.
1: So, George, let's begin, because you've had the special pleasure of speaking to Rishi Sunak this week for an FT interview about the budget. What was his mood like? What's his vision for this budget? He was, as usual
3: upbeat self, I suppose. We saw him on Friday in his office in the Treasury. It was a very stripped back, very Rishi-type office. The bulk of the work is done. It's a sort of mixed array, the tone, I suppose, when you meet Rishi Sunaki, someone who is very aware that we're still in the midst of a crisis and the budget, we're certainly going to see a lot more spending in the short term to prop up jobs and keep the economy going. But also, a very big theme of the interview coming through was the fact that he was concerned about the bill that's been racked up, the permanent damage done to the economy by the pandemic and the need to start raising taxes to plug that gap. So a very strong theme, I think, from the interview was the fact he said that we were all elected, all Tory MPs, that is, to put the public finances on a sound footing. I think that was a warning to Tory MPs that there are going to be some fairly unpalatable measures in the budget, along with more traditional
1: Sunak offerings of yet more billions of pounds spent on propping up the economy during the COVID crisis. Well, Gemma, let's just begin on that issue of the public finances. As I mentioned, there's been hundreds of billions of pounds spent on the various job retention schemes, the furlough, the bounce back loans. Is this a real problem? Because of course, there is the sense that interest rates are very low. So is Rishi Sunak wrong-headed to be worried at all?
0: The government has spent, as you say, hundreds of billions of pounds propping up the economy. And I think we'll probably see a further extension of some of those schemes in the budget. But I think The point George mentioned there is not so much that Rishi Sinek needs to pay back any of that debt that's built up. In a sense, government borrowing costs are very low and it's not too much of a risk for the government to leave debt somewhat elevated. But the real issue that Rishi Sinek faces and perhaps what he's going to be starting to talk about in next week's budget is actually what George talked about, that permanent damage that coronavirus may have done to the UK economy that we may come out of this with tax revenues lower than we were previously expecting and potentially also with pressure for more public spending, whether to improve the resilience of public services or more money to increase the generosity of universal credit, as there seems to be sort of increasing public pressure for. If we're in that position with lower tax revenues, higher pressure for spending, then that does raise the question of how do you balance that in the longer term?
1: George, what's your sense on what Ms Sunak thinks in terms of scarring to the economy? Because this is something lots of economists, Gemma and other think tanks as well, have looked at. Do you get the sense from him that he thinks that it's going to be quite deep and that's going to create a bigger problem in the future in terms of the tax base and how sustainable the size of public spending is?
3: Well, when you speak to people in the Treasury, they talk about the permanent hole in the public finances left by COVID being around 40 40- billion pounds. Other people have made slightly different estimates on that and may come in better than that. But that's the kind of hole he's looking to fill in. The government is concerned about the need to balance the books on day-to-day spending, at least having a target for stabilising debt. As Gemma said, you can park some of this borrowing in the very long term. But in the end, you need to find a way of stopping the debt rising on a year-by-year basis. So that's the objective I think he'll be setting himself. And then it comes down to some very tough choices. Um, His hands are tied largely by manifesto commitments not to increase the headline rates of income tax VAT and national insurance they're the three biggest revenue raises for the chancellor and therefore we having to look at things that Tory MPs really won't like including putting up the rate of corporation tax which every one percentage point rise in corporation tax raises about 3.3 billion pounds so that's quite a good place to start I think if you're the chancellor but it'll be highly controversial.
1: Gemma, the FT's reported this week that corporation tax is set to rise under the cover of the fact that Joe Biden in America is going to raise corporation tax too. And if it went up to, say, 25p in the UK, it would still be lower than a lot of the G7. Conservative MPs who don't like this will say it risks stifling growth, particularly at a time when you need to really boost the economy. What's your view on that?
0: The UK does have a pretty low rate of corporation tax amongst the major world economies. So that does give scope to raise the rate somewhat. And as you say, the moves by Joe Biden in the US give a bit more opportunity because corporation tax is one of those taxes where it matters what other countries are doing, where businesses might choose to locate instead. There's some on the, the right of the Tory party who point to the fact that corporation tax revenues rose at the same time as George Osborne was cutting rates and so suggesting that, look, we can cut rates whilst raising revenues and that implicitly doing the reverse, raising rates might cut revenues. But I think what that narrative misses out is that, yes, corporation tax revenues did rise as the rate was being cut, but that's not to say that they wouldn't have risen even further had the rate been somewhat higher. That was a period of economic growth. and Obviously, businesses only pay corporation tax if they're actually making a profit at the time.
4: And
1: George, what are the other taxes you think might be looked at? Because, of course, this is not Rishi Sunak dealing utterly with the public finance, because as well as that longer term issue, the FT's estimate is about a 40 to 50 billion pound black hole in day to day spending. That's not going to be filled by a corporation tax rise alone. No, definitely not.
3: Let's say he puts up corporation tax by five percentage points. That will bring in about 15 billion pounds. So that's a start. Then what do they do? Well, one thing that I'm certain they will do is um, what Chancellor's like to do, so-called stealth tax rises by freezing thresholds on income tax and other allowances. For example, the uh, lifetime allowance for pension savings, which our colleagues from The Times were reporting this week. So freezing allowances is a way of dragging people into higher tax bands and a way of raising more money. So I'm sure we'll see some of that. Then beyond that, there's a big question about whether you need to have one or two other really big tax reforms Whether the Chancellor will be bold enough to do that at this stage, I'm not so sure. It may be work for the second budget of the year in November. But the kinds of things that people in the Treasury have long wanted to have a go at are, for example, the pension tax relief system, which is hugely expensive for the Treasury, capital gains tax. The Chancellor's been advised to simplify that by his own tax advisors. But all of these carry heavy political costs for the Chancellor. Tory MPs don't like it at all. But I think it's really significant this week Downing Street were reminding Conservative MPs that if you vote against Rishi Sunak's budget, that will be seen as a confidence of voting the government, essentially meaning that those MPs will be booted out of the parliamentary party if they do it.
1: And Gemma, what do you think is being looked at in terms of a fiscal stimulus? Because yes, there is the public finances, but also Rishi Sunak's going to want to get the economy moving again. And we know that we've got the outlines of the COVID exit strategy this week, which showed that some shops are going to open again, hopefully from early April with outdoor hospitality, indoor hospitality in May. But it's not really going to be till June that things will be motoring in a decent way again. So what sort of measures could be in that realm?
0: Yes, I think it will be two interesting things to look out for. Mr. seems very likely to extend things like the furlough scheme for some additional months until the lockdown measures ease. I think so far, he's been very keen to ensure that those schemes are available to all businesses. It will be interesting to see whether they continue to do that or whether they decide to take more of a sectorally targeted approach, particularly for those sectors like international travel that are likely to be affected by restrictions for quite a lot longer than much of the rest of the economy. The danger of keeping support in place for everyone is that you end up propping up businesses that really have no viable future. On the other hand, pulling the rug out from some of those sectors that remain constrained risks those businesses going under before they've really been given a chance to show that they have a viable future post-COVID. In terms of more specific fiscal stimulus measures, so kind of encouraging people and businesses to spend their money once they're able to do that, It's a difficult question for the Treasury because it's not entirely clear how much of that's going to be needed. There's actually quite a lot of pent-up saving among some households and some businesses in the economy. And if those people actually are very positive once the measures ease and start going out and spending that money, then there may not be a huge need for the Treasury to actually stimulate demand yet further. If they do go for fiscal stimulus measures, I think it will be interesting to see whether they go with the sort of measures that Rishi Sunak favoured last summer, which was encouraging people to go out and go to hospitality venues, or whether they somewhat veer away from that because of the association between those face-to-face socialising activities and the risk of spreading the disease. And there's some evidence that the Eat Out to Help Out scheme last summer did help to uh, encourage that second spike of the infections in the autumn.
1: And George, of course, levelling up will be a part of this budget, because once you move beyond Brexit and you move beyond coronavirus, this is emerging as kind of the big theme of the Johnson government. This is trying to tackle regional inequality, tackle low productivity in other parts of the country than London, the South East. And one element we've been reporting on this week is moving civil servants out of the capital. And this has been done many times before, many schemes over decades, some with success, some less so. And Boris Johnson has pledged to move 22,000 officials out of Whitehall by the end of the decade. And the sort of symbolic crowning piece of this is going to be Treasury North, a campus based in the north of England that will initially house 750 officials from many government departments, over half of them from the Treasury itself. And it sounds as if, despite the concerns of some officials, it might be going to the town of Darlington in Tees Valley. Yes,
3: I asked Rishi Sunak about that, and he just smiled benignly when I said that that we thought it might be a handily located new outpost for the Treasury, very near to his own constituency, which adjoins the Tees Valley and North Yorkshire. In the past, some of the jobs that have been moved out of Whitehall tend to be back office jobs, clerical jobs and so on. The idea of this is you actually create centres of Whitehall outside London, which generate really good, high quality jobs where people will put down roots, build a career. And certainly the economic campus in the North is seen as a really important part of that. They're hoping it will work alongside a new national infrastructure bank as well. And the idea is people will be able to move between departments without ever having to come down to London to pursue a civil service career, which I think most people would agree is a good thing. The concern among the Mandarin classes in London is that if you're going to create these new hubs, it's better to do it in big cities where you've got a deep pool of talent, universities, good schools in the area and all the rest of it, rather than in a town like Darlington, which has a population of about 100,000. But, you know, the government has a policy of trying to revive red wall seats. So
1: it's a very big and symbolic decision for Rishi Sunak to make. And finally, Gemma, just a bit of the political context on this for Rishi Sunak, because as I said, he's only been chancellor a year and has had to Faced the most extraordinary events here, and he's spent money that I think no peacetime chancellor has done, never mind a conservative chancellor. And I think before he entered the Treasury, he was someone who was pretty well known in the Conservative Party for having right of center views. He did policy papers with Thatcherite think tanks. It's an all a rather uncomfortable situation for him, and it feels as if circumstances are probably challenging what he'd ideally want to be doing in this budget
0: his first two budgets probably not been what he was anticipating when he took on the role. In some ways, the circumstances do make it much harder for him to perhaps achieve things that he would have wanted. He is quite constrained by the Conservative manifesto in some of the things that he can do on the tax side because they have ruled out increases in three major taxes. On the other hand, we do see from past experience that crises are opportunities to do big things. And I think it would be interesting to see next week whether Rishi Sunak starts to lay out that sort of bigger vision and does he manage to set out a vision and some objectives that allow him to then do more significant changes on the tax side rather than ending up backed into a corner where he has to grasp for the sort of stealth tax changes that George was talking about earlier.
1: And finally, George, when you look at that political context there as well, obviously, Rishi Sunak has emerged pretty well from the coronavirus crisis. This budget is, I think, going to be start of an interesting flashpoint within the Tory party because you do have those more traditional Conservatives from the south of England who are much more concerned about keeping taxes low and maybe having a smaller state. And then those newly elected Conservatives in the North and Midlands who want lots of big infrastructure spending and don't mind raising taxes on the rich. When you look at the that context from speaking to him. Do you think he senses that divide and how is he going to overcome it? Yes, I think he does feel that divide
3: very acutely. Look, I don't think there's any question that the government's going to turn its back on relatively high levels of public spending. That's what they have promised those voters who turned to the Conservative Party at the last election, more spending on police, hospitals, schools, also money borrowed in the long term to pay for infrastructure improvements. I think then the question is, will the traditional low-tax Tories be prepared to accept the bill, which will fall, I suspect, largely on traditional conservative voters in the South, you other know, whether it's people who hold dividends in companies that are affected by corporation tax rises or capital gains tax or frozen tax thresholds. But Rishi Sunak, I think, is prepared to bite the bullet on that. And I think he's prepared to say, look, we were elected to spend. We we're also a conservative government, we we're elected to put the public finances back on a sound footing. It's better for us that we make these tough choices now, two or three years out from the next election, and leave it for another two or three years. So I think it's going to be a tough selling job, but I think he's prepared to do it this week.
1: Well, we'll be back next week to look at it and see if he's been successful. George and Gemma, thank you. The long war of attrition between Alex Salmon and Nicola Sturgeon finally came to the open this week. After much bickering about the conduct of Scotland's previous and current First Minister and accusations that Ms Sturgeon misled Parliament, Mr Salmon made a long-awaited appearance at a parliamentary select committee to defend his claims about his successor. And Mr Salmon did not hold back. He told the inquiry on Friday afternoon that Scotland's institutions were failing.
3: The Scottish civil servant hasn't failed. Its leadership has failed. The Crown Office hasn't failed. Its leadership has failed. Scotland hasn't failed. Its leadership has failed. So the importance of this inquiry is for each and every one of us to help put this right.
1: Well, Muir Dickie, before we get into the hearing on Friday and what Mr Sam was talking about there, give us some context about where all this came from and why it's been such a long road to see Mr Sam finally speaking about these allegations.
4: Well, this whole dispute started with complaints against Mr. Salmond by civil servants dating back to his time as First Minister. And the original government civil service-led investigation into those complaints was clearly botched. Everybody agrees that. Mr. Salmon challenged it in the High Court. The government has forced to agree that it was tainted by apparent bias. Then Mr. Salmond was charged with 13 counts of uh, sexual offences, And he was acquitted in all of them in the High Court last year. So now he's a very angry man. He believes that he has been conspired against, that some of Nicola Sturgeon's closest associates were involved in a malicious and concerted effort to drive him out of public life, even to the point of putting him in jail. And he has also, and this might be the most dangerous accusation politically for Nicola Sturgeon, accused her of breaking the ministerial code by misleading Parliament about uh, aspects of meetings that they had after the beginning of the investigation into him. And of course, we should note that Miss Sturgeon denies
1: all allegations of misleading Parliament or of any kind of cover-up. Well, Robert Shrimsley. normally when politicians throw on accusations of people trying to conspire to take them out of public life, it's normally dismissed. But this is Alex Salmon we're talking about here, who's a titan of Scottish politics, almost brought the country to independence and was first minister. So these claims of conspiracy can't really be easily dismissed. And I guess that's why finally they're getting
2: tried and tested out in front of this select committee hearing. And also the fact that he was obviously terribly close to his successor, Nicola Sturgeon, for a very long time. So there is a rather Shakespearean dimension to this whole thing. I think there is some perspective that needs to be kept here. However bad this looks, it's not as bad as if the allegations were that she had conspired to prevent justice being done, to prevent hearings being held or accusations of sexual abuse being covered up. So it's the reverse of that. But nonetheless, it is a huge moment. And I think the greatest significance of this is that Nicola Sturgeon is a massive asset to the independence movement and to the party she leads. She's very well regarded for her handling of the coronavirus crisis. And part of the thing that she's been trying to demonstrate in Scottish politics at the moment is that Scotland has a good enough leadership to go out on its own. So... That, I think, is the big potential damage for her and Alex Salmon's cause in all of this, which is, could it actually end up doing long-term damage to the likelihood of the country to vote for independence? My instinct is it won't do great damage to the chance of getting a pro-independence majority at the Holyrood elections. But longer term, there is real potential for damage. Now, can you just give
1: us an overview of what's been said so far? And that clip we heard from Alex Salmon at the top, that is going to stick because what he's really saying here is that Scotland, as its institutions are currently set up, are incapable of being an independent state. So it's not just about the failure of the proceedings and inquiries, but a much bigger failure about the way
4: the nation is run. Well, he's certainly not saying that Scotland shouldn't be independent or wouldn't be better off independent. But I think you don't have to accept the claims of conspiracy or corruption to feel that the Parliament has struggled throughout this process to get respect. That The Crown Office has been unable to explain its actions to people's satisfaction. You know, these are questions about institutions. And and if the argument for independence is that Scotland would do everything better than having things done for it by Westminster, then this clearly doesn't help. The first part of Salmon's appearance today was probably a bit dry for people who haven't been following this whole brouhaha with forensic interest, because it was looking at the original development of the complaints procedure, which he was investigated under. But there's lots of dangers for Sturgeon there that he is accusing her of things that would normally be resignation offences. And so having that kind of accusation put out on a and afternoon in the Scottish Parliament by your former mentor is clearly not good for the First Minister.
2: One of the reasons that the SNP has got into this place is because it has had complete control of the Scottish establishment and most of the levers of power in Scotland for a very long time now. And one of the things you're witnessing is what happens when there is no change of control in a country for a long time, and the institutions, the political parties blur together. And the same thing happened when Labour was in control for a very long time, and that was one of the SNP's big charges against Labour. So I think the other issue that we're seeing here is the problems of a state essentially being run by one party, albeit totally democratically.
1: And I guess this comes to the question about how much political damage this could all do, because if there's a separate inquiry, Muir, isn't there, into whether the First Minister misled Parliament. And if that obviously found that it was, then her position would become very difficult indeed. But at the moment, we don't know, and that's still ongoing, so we can't comment on that. But assuming that doesn't return that finding, is this going to halt or deter the SNP's march towards winning a majority in May's Hollywood elections?
4: The polls suggest that the SNP has a huge lead and is easily going to win the elections in May and may even again manage the extraordinary achievement in the Mm. Scottish proportionally representationally elected parliament of a majority. It's currently a, a minority government. We've seen a little bit of evidence from a poll this week that suggests that voters are looking a little bit askance at the SNP because of this inquiry, The level of commentary about it this week has been completely different. For the first time, it's actually challenged coronavirus as the main topic of political discussion in Scotland. So it may be that we see more impact. And it has to be said that even if the SNP wins May, as expected, there is a question of momentum. If they don't do as well as they did last time, or if they don't manage to achieve a majority in their own right, even if they get a pro-independence majority with the help of the Scottish Greens, then some of the the wind will be brought from their sails. And I think that would be a a relief to many pro-union politicians.
2: And I think one of the points is that actually the future of the union, assuming there is at some point a second referendum, will be decided by around five to sort of 8% of the population, the people who provided the majority for staying with the UK in the last referendum, a number of whom were then disillusioned by the Brexit vote and in switching have provided the current opinion poll majority for independence. And those are the people who are in play. And some of those are the people who can possibly be peeled off by the kind of divisions within the SNP leadership. It is worth pointing out one other thing in terms of the Holyrood elections, which is that actually because of the proportional representation system, if one of the other small and new pro-independence parties, there's one that seems to have some links to Alex Salmon called Action for Independence, stands just in the second part of that election, it's actually possible to maximise the pro-independence vote and for the forces of pro-independence to come out even further ahead. So it doesn't matter as much if the SNP vote splits and splinters to other pro-independence parties. Now, of course, Robert, we should also
1: mention what's been going on in the number 10 side of this, because obviously lots of Conservative unionists are rubbing their hands watching Mr. Salmon's appearance, and it's obviously providing their election slogans, talking about how the leadership of Scotland has failed here. But they've not got really much to crow about, because in the last month, Boris Johnson has lost two heads of the union unit in Downing Street, which is meant to be overseeing the counter-campaign to Scottish independence. The first one was Luke Graham, who used to be a Scottish Tory, MP. And the more recent one was Oliver Lewis, who's widely known as Sonic in Downing Street. And he was boosted after a dispute with Mr. Johnson, some say over strategy, some say over personalities. But the general feeling that I get is the personality is actually pointing to a much bigger problem, which is one of strategy, that they've not yet found a coherent answer to the rise of
2: Scottish independence. And it's something Mr. Johnson is struggling with. I mean, it's always possible when you have a turnover of people to say, look, everything's in chaos. And it's equally possible to three months down the line to say, well, thank God they did that. Now they've got a clear path. So one's always in danger of overdoing it in the weeks that it happens. But what is clearly true is that the government has not found a clear enough strategy that it is happy with for facing up to the very serious risk of breakaway. Clearly, the very best strategy would have been to devise something which denied the SNP a majority in these coming elections and nipped the whole problem in the bud, but that's clearly unlikely now. So the next strategy is how do you prepare for a new Scottish government calling for a second referendum and demanding it? And I think there was a division between those around the Vote Leave Caucus, the Dominic Cummings allies, whose basic position was we simply say no to a second referendum. We're not going to let them have it. Let them throw themselves off balance. We defy what's happened and we just bat on. And there's a second strategy more closely associated, I think, with Michael Gove, which is that you're going to have to face up to this sooner or later. And a better thing is keep working on the Scottish people, on that soft group I talked about, and say, look, there are more benefits to the union than you're perhaps thinking about at the moment. We've got the vaccines, the British government is taking over from Europe, some of the investment opportunities for the whole of the country. And it can direct some of that investment into Scotland, it can attempt to bypass the Holyrood government and work directly with local authorities and put money into parts of Scotland and say, look, this is only happening because of the union. And I think what we are probably going to see is more of that approach coming to the fore in the coming months. And finally, Muir, the other
1: thing I just want to pick up with you is the Scottish Labour Leadership Contest, which is also coming to its conclusion with a new leader announced. And it feels like Anna Sawa, who was previously deputy leader of Scottish Labour and also a Scottish Labour MP at one point, is the favourite to win that. Is that right? And how does that change the political dynamic in Scotland, do you think?
4: But he's certainly the favourite. confess that with all the salmon sturgeon ructions this week, I haven't been paying the attention I would like to have to Scottish Labour's... Uh, leadership That's election. forgivable. But but that is in fact the point. I mean, Labour's decline from dominant political first in Scotland to almost irrelevant has been core part of the rise of the SNP and part of the opening of the door to independence. So Labour has been pillar of union support in Scotland and it's vital to be able to have a a kind of pro-union party for people who are on the left to vote for that looks uh, effective. It's going to be a big challenge for whoever wins on Saturday and I think they're not going to get any help from the Conservatives. Just today Douglas Ross was putting the boot in and saying either candidate wouldn't be strong enough in the union and that everybody should just vote for the Tories instead.
1: Well, Robert, finally, I guess that is the challenge, isn't it? Is that when you speak to Conservative misses in London, they acknowledge Scottish Labour needs to be stronger and needs to be better if you are going to save the UK. Let's assume the SNP do still win a majority despite everything with Nicholas Sturgeon and Alex Salmon that happens over the next couple of weeks and months. At that point, what happens in Westminster, my assumption is Boris Johnson just keeps saying no and ignores it. That, of course, risks creating more resentment and ultimately boosting
2: support for succession. As far as what Boris Johnson does, I think his starting point will be to say no. (laughs) and they will fight the Holyrood election saying this isn't about the referendum. They'll say, this is not the time, we're still recovering from the crisis. So step one is to just defer and delay for as long as possible and see if you can avoid too much of a head of steam, see if that builds up problems for the leadership of the SNP, which is split over, whether to hold an unauthorized referendum or an advisory referendum. So they'll try and keep that going for as long as possible. But I think there is a growing recognition among the higher reaches of the government. That's not a sustainable position forever. And so that at some point, if the pressure continues, they are going to have to think about a plan to fight it.
1: Muir and Robert, thank you very much as always for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please do subscribe. You can find us through all your usual channels. And if you like this, then a thumbs up and a nice comment are always welcome. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh DeLamere. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor Amy Keane. Until next time, thanks for listening.